Welcome to the New Idea Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Vocal. And I'm your co-host, Bob Love. This is the podcast where we delve deep into Northwood's core philosophy, talking with people who live the founding philosophies of this institution. We are thankful you're listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Idea Podcast. My name is John Vocal. And I'm Bob Love. Today, we are joined by Mark Perry. He is a professor at the University of Michigan, Flint, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and the creator of the Carpe Diem blog. Uh, Dr. Perry, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, so there's a few topics that we're going to end up talking uh, to you about today, but I just kind of want to get started uh, about your recent work uh, relating to Title IX. I'd like to hear you kind of um, unpack some of your opinions on that, what you're kind of looking to accomplish in that uh, you know, genre. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I was been in higher education now for almost 30 years and really just started becoming more aware about five years ago of this, what I've been calling systemic sexism in higher education and this kind of double hypocritical double standard for enforcing Title IX's prohibition of sex discrimination. And actually the first awareness I had was that Michigan State University in East Lansing had a women's only lounge up until um, around 2017. And uh, I called that a system of gender apartheid because if you've ever been there, you know in their big student union building, we walk into the main entrance and then just to the right, a huge wing of the first floor of the building was set aside in a discriminatory fashion that really was a violation of Title IX. It violates the Michigan Constitution, violates uh, Michigan State's own statement of non-discrimination and violates Michigan civil rights laws. It's completely illegal and also just unethical and immoral and objectionable that they would discriminate against half the campus and provide this study space that was for women only without uh, providing an equivalent study space for men. So according to Title IX, it's just kind of like when you have bathrooms, I guess you could have men's and women's spaces or men's and women's programs that are equivalent. Um, or you have to have facilities or educational opportunities or programs or scholarships that are open to everybody, regardless of gender. So Title IX says that you can't you know, treat men and women differently when they are you know, applying for a, um, a scholarship or for an award or whatever the um, you know, educational program is. So that was my first awareness. And then that was really kind of, uh, and then I challenged it. And they eventually then had to close it down and remodel it and reopen it, I think in the fall of 2017, um, as a space for students of all genders. Um, but then that became my kind of wake up point, I guess, that I realized that it wasn't just Michigan State and it wasn't just one women's only student lounge, that that was kind of just symbolic. It was obvious and, and, and physically obvious because you could walk in and see that men were not allowed in this space on Michigan State's campus, but that that was representative and symbolic of what was going on throughout all of higher education and almost every university, and that was much less visible, but there was all sorts of systemic sexism and discrimination on the basis of sex and violation of Title IX throughout all of higher education. And so that's kind of what started me on this one-man mission um, to challenge these inequities and this um, you know, sex discrimination in higher education. And so over the last 
probably really three years or so, I filed um, more than 300 complaints against uh, for about a thousand different Title IX violations at more than 300 colleges and universities around the country, including the University of Michigan Flint, where I've been a professor for 25 years. And I challenged some of their um, single sex female only faculty awards. And then, I, and those were overturned and now are open to all faculty. I challenged um, a summer STEM camp that was gonna be for girls only called the GEMS camp, Girls in Engineering, Math and Science. And when I heard about that, I challenged that. And that was then um, um, converted into a all gender co-educational program. And so I've uh, challenged more than a thousand Title IX violations around the country and some Title VI violations as well, where uh, uh, colleges are not allowed to discriminate, discriminate on the basis of race, color, or national origin. But about 90% of my civil rights complaints have been for Title IX violations at universities around the country. And I think that's more Title IX complaints than any individual has ever filed in the history of Title IX going back to 1972. And so as a result of those about now 320 complaints for more than a thousand violations, that's resulted in more than 150 federal investigations by the Office for Civil Rights, which is part of the Department of Education. And so when they get a complaint, they evaluate it, and then they either open it for investigation when it's warranted, which is usually, in my case, I've tried to make sure that they're valid complaints, or they could possibly dismiss it. So as a result of the 300 complaints, some are still being evaluated, but about 150 of those complaints turned into federal civil rights investigation for Title IX violations. And then based on those 150 or more investigations, there's been about 50 resolutions, mostly in my favor, against colleges and universities that then are you know, forced by the Office for Civil Rights to correct their Title IX violations. So that's kind of a summary and overview. And then we can, of course, discuss more details now. Yeah, um, so this problem of exclusions in universities has definitely increased rapidly in the past decade or so. Um, it's something that, you know, I've witnessed just being a college student. Um, I've seen this issue too, um, on the basis of race more so in the past few years, uh, university of Michigan, Ann Arbor, for example, I've seen has, uh, you know, uh, asked for certain college opportunities and has asked that, uh, Caucasian people don't apply to those opportunities. Are there Title VI issues with things like that as well, or is that within their rights to exclude certain people based off their race for certain educational opportunities? No, I mean, you're exactly right. And uh, actually more, of my, more and more of my activity and my efforts, my civil rights efforts have been directed towards Title VI violations. So just like Title IX, Title VI says that a university is not allowed to treat individuals differently based on their race, color, or national origin. And so uh, one of the new things now, I mean, uh, it's again, kind of a revival or repackaging of old fashioned Jim Crow segregation, segregated you know, drinking fountains and so on, is that they're now calling them affinity groups. Um, and I've been challenging a number of those, including at Harvard and at Michigan State and a number of other universities where they're in, in the name of, I don't know, whatever it is, racial justice or critical race theory, they're having events on campuses that are restricted 
by race and segregated by race. And so there'll be an affinity group for white uh, identified students, faculty or staff only. And then another affinity group that could be either online meeting, which is common now because of COVID, or it could be actually physical meetings in a physical space for only BIPOC or black indigenous people of color. And so this is becoming increasingly common. And so I have been challenging um, racial discrimination and which are uh, Title VI violations. And so you're right that this is becoming more common and that universities are not allowed to discriminate or segregate faculty or staff for students on the basis of race or color, but they seem to be doing it more and more. Although often when they get caught and there's publicity, then they reverse it because it's almost like they try to do it until they get caught or they think it's okay or they might not even be aware that it's a violation of federal civil rights laws. So just one example, Michigan State University last week had some kind of student success conference, um, mostly for, for uh, administrators, not for students, but it was uh, for, I think, college administrators and um, you know, academic advising, um, uh, residential life type um, employees of Michigan State. So they have this annual student success conference and they were advertising on their website, the, the website for the program that this year, one of the new events was gonna be affinity groups where they were gonna separate the participants into um, white participants in one affinity group and then all the non-white um, participants into a BIPOC or persons of color affinity group. And so this was reported by uh, Michigan Capital Confidential at the Mackinac Center. It was uh, reported by the College Fix. And then when I heard about it, I filed a Title VI complaint. And then after that publicity was generated, and this is going back two or three weeks, then Michigan State put out a statement that they realized that that was not acceptable to have segregation. Again, I call it kind of the modern racism or modern uh, segregated Jim Crow type of approach uh, repackaged into this new, you know, kind of affinity group, you know, nice sounding name. Um, but once it got exposed in the media, then Michigan State, their spokesperson had to put out a statement saying that they were not going to separate the participants, that they were going to allow any participant to attend any of the two different affinity groups. So that's what's been happening a lot more. Harvard, I just filed a Title VI complaint against Harvard for having some kind of um, you know, healing spaces, one for whites only, one's, one for non-whites only. So that is a violation of federal civil rights laws to discriminate on the basis of uh, race, color, or national origin. So just like with sex, colleges and universities are not allowed to treat individual students or faculty or staff differently on the basis of race, sex, or national origin in terms of their eligibility to participate in a campus event or apply for a, uh, an award or a fellowship or scholarship. So that's kind of the new um, direction of my efforts is to also make sure that universities are enforcing Title VI because with both Title IX and Title VI, as a condition, it's very serious, as a condition of getting federal financial assistance, which includes Pell Grants and federally insured student loans, as well as direct research grants, universities, including Northwood and everybody else on a regular basis, annually or on a fairly regular basis, they have to certify to the Department of Education 
that as a condition of continuing to get federal or taxpayer financial assistance, that they are enforcing Title IX's prohibition against sex discrimination and Title VI's prohibition of discrimination on the basis of race, color, and national origin. So they are regularly certifying to the Department of Education that they are enforcing the federal civil rights laws when in fact hundreds and maybe thousands of universities are continuing to violate federal civil rights laws. And now they're being held accountable because through my efforts and some other people who have also been doing kind of what I've been doing, that we're now trying to hold higher education accountable to enforce Title VI and Title IX uniformly for everybody, for all students. So it's Title IX for all, Title VI for all, and not just for some, which has been kind of the past practice of only enforcing Title IX when it's discrimination against women uh, and so on. So that's kind of where we're, where, where we're at now. I know, I know you're, you're no expert, expert and you don't, don't work in the institutions that are um, you know, making these decisions as to who gets into what groups and who is segregated by what. But if the purpose of Title IX and Title VI was to stop these things from happening, do you have any insight on why they continue to happen? Yeah, well, it's, it's a really good uh, question. And, and I think about it because it has to be one of two things, two possibilities, two outcomes. Either the universities are not even aware that they're violating Title IX and Title VI, which is a possibility because they see it happening so much. And a lot of these programs that I've been challenging, like let's say a summer uh, STEM camp for girls only or a summer engineering program, they've been around for sometimes 20 or 25 years and they've never been challenged. And so they're not even aware that that's a violation of Title IX because I think in the past people were afraid or unwilling to challenge them. So it's a, there's a possibility that universities, when they look around the country, and so if, if like, for example, when University of Michigan Flint was gonna start a summer um, STEM camp for girls only, the Girls in Engineering, Math and Science program, this is in 2017, I'm sure they looked around, Kettering University has a program, other universities, uh, Ann Arbor has certain summer programs for girls only for STEM, they look around the country, they see hundreds of these types of programs. So it's possible that they look at that and think, well, everybody else is doing it. There can't be anything wrong with it. So we're gonna start it. And then often the administrators, this was probably some science faculty who decided to start this summer program. It's not like they would always check with general counsel or the lawyers or the Title IX office. They just see it happening everywhere else. So they just go ahead and start it. And then usually it's the case that they, they then don't even get challenged. And so then they think it's okay. You know, the other possibility is that they're aware of Title IX and Title VI laws, and they know that they're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of sex or race or color, but they just decide that they're gonna do it anyway because they've got this, you know, goal of whatever it is, social justice or promoting, um, you know, some kind of ideology where they think it's okay to discriminate in certain cases. So, but then it's a case of, you know, they think the Title IX isn't for everybody, it's only for, for women, or the Title VI isn't for everybody, it's only for Blacks and people of color and not for whites. So it's possible that they think they're above the law. So I've often said that either they're unaware of the federal civil rights laws, which is not a good thing, or they're aware of the federal civil rights laws and they think they're above the civil rights laws and they think they're just gonna do it anyway, because in most cases in the past when they've done that, no one has challenged them. The professors are too afraid to challenge them. Staff are too afraid. Students are afraid. 
alumni are afraid. Everybody's afraid to challenge and go up against um, kind of the, uh, the systemic sexism and systemic racism that are objectionable and also illegal. But since everybody's afraid to challenge these programs until I have been and some other people, that they have just been able to get away with it, even knowing that they're illegal. And they might just think, well, we'll just do this as long as we can. Because even the worst case, and when I uh, prevail and have an outcome favorable to my complaint, the universities, then there's never a fine, there's never a penalty, there's no kinds of reparations, there's no apology. They don't have to even admit guilt. All they have to do to satisfy the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is to say, okay, basically we got caught, we're gonna correct the violation, here's what we're gonna do. We're either gonna discontinue this discriminatory single sex girl only or female only program, or we're going to convert it from a single sex female only program into a co-educational program that's open to students or faculty or, or staff of all gender identities. So then they can fix the violation pretty easily, or they can just agree to discontinue the program, which happens kind of often as well. But because they don't have to apologize to their past record of discrimination, they don't have to pay a fine or pay a penalty, then I'm thinking that often the universities knowingly violate Title IX and Title VI, knowing that in the worst case scenario is they get caught because somebody like me complains and then they have to correct the violation, but they don't have to admit guilt. They don't have to pay a fine. They don't have to pay a penalty. So the downside for them is, is you know, pretty, pretty minimal. And so maybe they just figure they will violate federal civil rights laws until they get caught knowing that the penalties are not very severe. So do you think we need any Title IX or Title VI revision? Because there are solid programs that, from what it sounds like, are being hurt because there isn't an all-inclusive opportunity. Like there are just going to be some in instances where there will be, you know, women engineering programs, and maybe they don't have it for for men. Or, or I guess I, I I'm not an expert on that, so I wouldn't know. But I, do you think we need some sort of revision? I guess is my my question because there are people worse off because of these these uh, laws. Um, um, you know, legal standard is, is pretty clear and pretty solid along with the Title VI. So, I mean, they, you know, the Title IX um, standard or legal standard, the law says that no person on the basis of sex shall face discrimination or be excluded from any mm -hmm. programs. Uh, and the same thing with, with race and color. So I don't think we need any revisions to the underlying, you know, legal standard of Title IX or Title VI. What we really need is greater enforcement. And the way it normally works is that, um, you know, there's 12 offices for civil rights that are part of the Department of Education, regional offices, so they're all over the country. And so, but the, the one point would be that they don't go out looking, they don't do what I'm doing. So the Office for Civil Rights doesn't go out and look at Northwood University or University of Michigan or Michigan State and see what kind of violations they can find. They only respond to complaints from people like me or could be students, faculty, staff. Mm -hmm. So they're, they respond when they get complaints. Now, when they get the complaint, then really the important part is that the complaint get evaluated fairly um, and they have a case processing manual. So they're supposed to go through the, the manual and you know, it has a complaint has to meet um, several standards that the discrimination has to have taken place 
in the last 180 days, and they have to make sure that it's a violation of <clears throat> federal civil rights laws. And so then they open it for investigation. So really the change that, that I'm hoping to bring about is not any changes in the underlying Title IX or Title VI you know, legal standards, but more enforcement and more uniform enforcement, because as I've mentioned, I think that, well, that they, they're very quick to correct any violations when women are the subject of any kind of discrimination or when they're facing any kinds of obstacles. But they don't give men the same accommodation the legal accommodation, um, and the same thing with you know for color that they would look at discrimination against blacks or people of color more closely probably than they would look at discriminate discrimination illegal discrimination against white students or sometimes Asian students. So really, what I'm hoping for is just greater enforcement of Title IX and Title VI standards that are pretty clear. Um, and don't really require any any changes, and then just a uniform um, uh, enforcement, ending this long history of a double standard and hypocritical double standard for enforcement, where they are assuming Title IX only applies to some students, but not everybody, and Title VI is only only applies to some students and not others. So that's what we really are hoping for here is um, a uniform enforcement of Title IX and Title VI, which are very clear federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination for universities that accept federal financial assistance. And as a requirement of getting that funding from taxpayers, basically, they have to agree to enforce those federal civil rights laws. And they have not been doing that very well. What's concerning to me, too, is you uh, said the phrase of like a repackaging a couple of times, right, where they're repackaging these policies as some form of equity equalizer, something like that, when at the end of the day, what they're really doing is excluding other people uh, that, you know, are seeking the same educational opportunities. Um, and I've seen similar people try to call out the same hypocrisy that you're speaking to and have been called racist or sexist as a result of trying to equalize the standards there. Um, have you ran into any issues such as that? And what's the best way to combat that when at the end of the day, you're really just trying to uphold the guarantees that uh, Title VI and Title IX, uh, you know, try to submit? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've been a little surprised. I would have expected that, you know, I, I think I'm taking a pretty controversial position by challenging sex discrimination and now racial discrimination. And so I would have expected a little more blowback or people trying to cancel me, but I'm just thinking that, you know, their argument really isn't with me filing a Title IX complaint. Their argument then would be with Title IX that if, and they must not like, um, like maybe some of the feminists, if they would object to what I'm doing, like they, well, they really objected to my, you know, um, complaints against the, the women's only lounge at Michigan State. But then, um, the, the complaint really isn't with me. The complaint is that they don't like Title IX. And Title IX says that no person, not no woman. So if everybody wants the protection of Title IX and Title VI, then they have to agree that everybody should have the benefit of, of the enforcement when there's discrimination against anybody. So, and, and now with the kind of the repackaging of Jim Crow segregation into what sounds like acceptable you know, educationally valuable affinity groups. Well, it's still just um, old fashioned segregation. If you're saying, 
if you're treating people differently and saying that only white people can attend this meeting and only non-white people or blacks, indigenous people of color, BIPOC can attend this other meeting, that then you're then you're really going back to segregate it's old-fashioned segregation, just like you know, drinking fountains for white people and black people separately. We're kind of just going back to that if we're gonna say that these affinity groups, which are really just segregated groups based on skin color, that that's really, I think, you know, going backwards and it really needs to be critically, more critically evaluated and it should not be um, accepted and, and should really be rejected as a new form of racism. And that's not, if a new form of racism is not gonna do an effective job at addressing past racism. I mean, you can't have new racism today and think that that's gonna you know, do something about past racism. Racism It's just not logical to take that approach. And I think it's gonna actually lead to greater divisions on campus. And, you know, because what we're doing, they talk about diversity and equity and inclusion uh, as, as one of you mentioned, but really they're doing exactly the opposite, that it's uniformity instead of diversity, and it's exclusion instead of inclusion, and it's inequitable instead of, instead of equitable. So it's really a, a perversion of even what they're standing for. They talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity, and yet they're practicing exactly the opposite. It's uniformity, inequity, and, and exclusion. And so it's really a troubling trend, and I just hope people really pay closer attention. I think they are. I hope that podcasts like this will bring greater awareness to what's happening and that will really kind of show greater resistance to what I think is a very troubling trend in, in higher education and just resegregation and a new form of racism that's just repackaging Jim Crow laws that everybody used to find objectionable. Now, I guess if you call it an affinity group instead of um, segregation, it somehow sounds better, but in the end, it's underlying it is still old fashioned segregation based on skin color. And, and I think I find that objectionable. I think most other people would too. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think we both appreciate the work that you're doing to that to try to bring attention to this issue. Cause um, you know, just being a student around other college students from different universities, they have the same complaints, but they don't know exactly where to speak out. So you doing that on their behalf definitely is uh, providing a, a probably a much needed service uh, to those regulations. Um, to switch gears real quick, um, I've been familiar with you and your work as an economist for a few years now. Um, I think the first thing that I read from you was uh, your article on the restaurant recession that happened in New York with the minimum wage law uh, increase, um, which I believe you, you published through the American Enterprise Institute. Um, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on minimum wage laws uh, as they're currently being debated and how uh, the Biden administration is kind of going about pushing this, you know, pretty much at a federal level, even though, you know, economies across all of the states are are vastly different and have vastly different wage standards. Yeah, sure. You know, I think um, even though I and a lot of economists would object to uh, any kind of minimum wage laws, either if it's local, state, or federal, I think the the one you know maybe slightly you know hopeful or maybe positive sign is that. Um, that a lot of the federal, I'm sorry, a lot of the minimum wage activity or legislation is happening at the city or state level. And partly because um, it makes more sense for the cities and states to set their own minimum wages. And also, I guess, partly because 
the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised for so long from 7.25 an hour, but I think it's still objectionable to have a single uniform federal minimum wage that let's say they want it to be $15 an hour. Um, and, and that I think would be good for some parts of the country, like in California and New York, where it's you know high cost of living, where maybe $15 could make sense there. But you get into rural areas, maybe even Midland or smaller towns across the country, $15 an hour is way higher than the market wage. And so I've written before about how when it's a one size fits all federal minimum wage, then it's really one size fits none because the cost of living varies so much that it doesn't really make sense to have a federal minimum wage at $15 an hour. It would make a lot more sense for cities and states to set their own minimum wages at the city and local and, and even county or state level. So, and we seem, have seen some of that happen. A lot of, I think almost half the states now might have federal minimum wages, um, I mean, have state minimum wages above the federal, including Michigan. Um, so, you know, that could be a, it's not ideal, but it's maybe the second best option compared to having a federal minimum wage. So, you know, I just think that <clears throat> the there'll be a, enough, I mean, at some point, it seems like the federal minimum wage is going to have to be raised. It maybe doesn't make sense to go up to $15 an hour. It's never clear. I mean, that's one of the problems with the minimum wage. You know, why 15? Why not 14? Why not 16? Why not 12 or 20? They never say why, or it's never that, that based on some kind of analysis that that's some optimal minimum wage that would, you know, take into account all the costs and the benefits of federal political wage setting, as, as I've been calling it sometimes. Um, so, you know, it's never, it's always just some arbitrary wage that is never based on any kind of, you know, analysis or anything like that. So 15 is just sounds good or Obama said 1010 is easy to remember or something. So the $15 an hour minimum wage, I suppose it will pass eventually at the federal level. Um, and if it's not 15, maybe it'd be something lower, but it's just, um, Again, it's objectionable from an economic standpoint because it assumes that politicians know what the correct minimum wage is when they really don't. And wages like any price or interest rate should be set by market forces of supply and demand and not by politicians in Lansing or in Washington, DC. So, so I guess the only really maybe somewhat positive development lately has just been cities and states setting their own minimum wage, which even though that's still not what economists would like, at least it's maybe a second best outcome or option compared to having a $15 minimum wage imposed throughout the entire country for every market and every state. Absolutely. And uh, do you believe then that just having no minimum wage and a, a pure market for labor would probably create a net positive result for workers in the fact that they actually would have more control over negotiating their wages rather than settling for a government mandated mandated uh, minimum. Yeah, I think that when the market sets the wages based on real market forces, then it really helps a lot of workers because like now um, in a kind of when employers are, are um, you know, kind of desperate to find workers for reasons we can talk about as well with the unemployment benefits. But 
somebody just reported that um, the dishwashers in California are getting $21 an hour because there's kind of a shortage of, of restaurant workers. And so the market forces will push wages up when it's appropriate based on the conditions of supply and demand. And then also, you know, so those are for workers who are already maybe semi-skilled or skilled or already in the labor market, their wages would get pushed up through market forces. And also on the lower end, for people who have no skills or they have limited experience or they have maybe, you know, they're completely unskilled or just out of high school uh, or even in high school, but they have never worked before, giving them the ability to work for an employer at a wage below even, let's say, the minimum wage because one of the things they get, even if they worked at $5 an hour, they're gonna get valuable on the job training. We know that that creates value for an employee to have the skills from work experience that then allows him or her to be able to get a better job or, or command a higher wage as they are able to demonstrate to employers that they have experience and that they're productive. So. I think what gets lost, you know, so if, again, if thinking the $15 minimum wage, if that got passed nationally, would really price unskilled workers way out of the market. Because one of the other things that kind of doesn't always get appreciated is that workers compete against each other, not against the employers. Employers compete against other, employer, other employers to get the best workers. Employees are competing against other employees to get the best job and get the highest wage. And so it's just a reality of the labor market that unskilled workers compete against more skilled or more experienced workers. And so when you have no skills and you have no experience, one of the weapons you have to compete against more skilled workers is to offer to work at a lower starting wage to an employer, because then maybe the employer would figure, well, <clears throat> I'm gonna have to train this person. They've never worked before. They have no job experience, no skills. I'm gonna have to you know, train them and teach them give them on the job training. But if I can get them at a low enough wage, then it'll make sense for me to invest the resources and time that I might need to invest to train them on the job, <laughs> excuse me. So when you take away that, you know, the ability, um, kind of one of the best bargaining chips that an um, unskilled worker would have, the ability to start work at a very low wage so they can get the work skills that they need and the experience and move up on the, the ladder in the labor market and you take that away from them then that really damages the most vulnerable workers because then what will happen is that the employers would say well if i have to pay 15 dollars an hour and it's either going to be an unskilled worker or a skilled worker i'm going to hire the skilled worker because i can't hire the unskilled worker anymore at 725 an hour so now if i have to you know increase my wages to 15 as a minimum then I'm gonna hire more skilled, more experienced workers and I'm not gonna bother hiring an unskilled, inexperienced worker who has never worked before because now I have a preference, it makes more sense to hire the skilled worker. So market, the market really is the worker's best friend and when you pass federal minimum wage laws or when you have political wage setting, then it really works against the market forces that would be the best friend of the uh, workers, especially unskilled, limited experience workers. And the biggest argument I see right now against uh, kind of what we're talking about here is that people don't want to go back to work right now because they're getting $300 extra in unemployment benefits right now. So when you have a, um, and that's, that's per week. So when you have a job offer that's 
you know, 450 plus tips for a server or you know, you're making 925 an hour for a, a dishwasher, people say, hey, I, I don't want to go back to work because I can make more money, you know, kind of sitting on my rear collecting unemployment. What, what's the solution there? Where do you think we could go from there? Yeah, well, I think in there are some states, I just saw, I think South Carolina has proposed this, maybe Florida and Montana, is that they're trying to take away the $300 a week supplement that's coming from the federal government and then to, to you know, create or take away the disincentives that people have to work and create greater incentives for people to work. Because, I mean, it just makes sense that if you pay people more to not work than what they would make if they worked, or even if they make a little bit more working, they still have to go to work for, let's say, 40 hours a week, when if they're not working at all, then they can just watch Netflix and play video games and not do anything. So I think really the, the solution, especially now that the economy is recovering, employers are desperate to hire employees. I don't think there's any need anymore for the federal government to be subsidizing state unemployment benefits with the $300 a week um, payments through, I think, through Labor Day. Uh, now, I doubt that they would take those away, but, um, you know, I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, I guess, I think it would make sense to take away the federal supplements for unemployment benefits, because then people are going to um, go back to work quicker. It'll solve the um, challenges that employers are facing now of not being able to find enough um, workers and would get the economy moving forward better than it is now. Um, but it's just that um, I don't know if the goal is to kind of get people addicted to government or, or to buy votes from all these people who are happy that the government's taking care of them. But it just really uh, sends a bad signal to the labor market and to the, and to the economy that it's, it's beneficial to um, stay home and not work instead of going to work. I mean, it just is damaging for for the, the long-term, you know, kind of uh, health of the labor market. And, and also just at a personal level, I mean, you know, people have talked about how, what is valuable for people is to earn success. Arthur Brooks at the American Enterprise Institute or the former president used to talk about that all the time, but what gives people value in life is earned success. And that's why he documented how a lot of people who win the lottery, because it was not earned success that they often have a lot of either financial troubles or personal troubles. And so again, by giving people an incentive to stay home and watch Netflix and play video games, it takes away the what gives them really the most dignity in life, which is earned success. And so it's damaging to the labor market, damaging to employers, and then it just damages you know workers who eventually will go back to work, but now they're missing out on achieving um, you know productive uh, productive work and earned success that, that they should you know, find the most value in. So, yeah, so, but I think the best thing we could do right now would be to end the federal benefits and get people back on the job. Well, there's this giant misconception too, that the only way to become a skilled worker in the workforce is to go to, you know, trade school or an institution and get a college degree or university degree, wherever it is. Instead, you can become a skilled worker, like you said earlier, through on-the-job training, through your, your career, wherever you're at. Yeah, and you know, I think we've had a national obsession for 20 years or more, maybe even longer, of trying to force every high school student to go to college and get a college degree, which, you know, is good for some students, but not every student. And so now, you know, Mike Rowe and others, you know, talk about how there's, you know, a shortage 
of the skilled tradesmen that we need in terms of just you know home builders and carpenters and and plumbers and welders and so on um, that are important to the Michigan economy and important to the to the national economy. And you know, so we've made you know college debt easy, and so there's now what 1.7 trillion dollars worth of student loan debt. And then you know, it's fine. I know Northwood more you know is more uh, specialized in you know business degrees and so on. So yeah, so the students who are getting degrees in business, um, medicine, healthcare, engineering, education, computer science, those kinds of fields, you know, they're doing very very well because there's there's a demand for those college educated workers, but those who are getting degrees in, you know, what I call bitterness studies or in indignation studies or grievance studies, any of those degrees and in, in studies, um, you know, those students are having a hard time being successful in the, in the job market. And I suppose it's a lot of those students who then would be happy to have their student loan, um, you know, uh, relieved. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, so I think in terms of the education of the country, I think we'd be a lot better off if more students were encouraged and more motivated to go into a two-year degree or go into become a, you know, a, an apprentice carpenter, an apprentice plumber, go into the skilled trades instead of, you know, trying to force every high school student in America that their, their future success is tied to getting a college degree because as we found out, very, very expensive and it doesn't always pay off. And now a lot of students have a lot of debt um, that is creating a lot of problems. Sure. So um, out of all of the people that we've had uh, the privilege of, of talking to uh, with Freedom Week coming up here, I believe that you have spoken the most. You've, you've spoken at Freedom Week, what, four or five times at this point? Yeah, you know, I was at the, I was there last year um, when I talked about price gouging. I and then I was there another time, I think, to talk about either international trade or maybe it was the minimum wage. So there was a little bit of a gap. I was there maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And then for about the last 10 or 12 years, I've lived in Washington. So the timing didn't always work out for me to get to Midland um, in May. But now the last two years, I've done it. And so, yeah, so I think this must be my maybe fourth time. Awesome. Um so I just kind of wanted to ask, uh, as we close up here, uh, what students have to look forward to uh, about your discussion, and also, you know, you being such an active participant participant in the education market, kind of, you know, what your experience has been working with Northwood, and uh, what makes uh, Northwood unique with its core philosophies versus other educational institutions. Yeah, well, I think it's it's very. Um remarkable and a uh, very positive thing that the Northwood students get the opportunity to go through this uh, freedom seminar every every May and have you know speakers come in like I know you've got Jason Riley coming in uh, for the for the for the seminar this year um, so that's a really a great opportunity but then just in terms of the promotion of the free market because what what you see at most universities, is that they're um, they're embracing socialism now, and they're not really promoting, you know, the history of this country, and it was based on free market capitalism, and democracy, and especially, you know, in the area of business, to have an appreciation for the market economy. So I think that's what students get at Northwood that they don't get at 
many other universities and, and often, you know, the business school or the Department of Economics would be a little more conservative or libertarian, although that doesn't always, that does, isn't always the case. So I think the advantage Northwood's, Northwood students have is being, you know, at a university that is um, supportive of free market principles and students there would get an appreciation of free market capitalism that they might not get elsewhere. And I think that's critically important because I'm sure students often now going through public schools through high school would get a very pessimistic or negative um, message about the market and about capitalism and would probably get a lot more indo indoctrinated into some kind of Marxist ideology or even with socialism now, which has become so popular, I guess. So to, to get that grounding in a, um, uh, a market-based approach to education with you know, the principles of the market being you know, supported and promoted, I think that's a huge advantage that students at Northwood would get that they wouldn't get at uh, most other colleges or universities. Hey, well, we appreciate that. And uh, we're very excited to be having you uh, yet again this year to, to share some of that wealth of knowledge you have about markets. Um, so uh, do you have any other closing remarks before we wrap up here? No, just that I'm looking forward to yeah, giving my talk on uh, Saturday morning. And I think students would find it um, interesting. I mean, if nothing else, I, if there was a Guinness World's Record for the person who had filed the most Title IX complaints <laughs> for, for that record. So it's kind of noteworthy by itself, just that one individual has taken this on as kind of a mission and a crusade, whatever it would be called, to just kind of be, uh, you know, uh, you know, promote civil rights and and um, and try to, you know, kind of hold higher education accountable. So I think that by itself could be interesting. And so I'm looking forward to um, giving the talk as kind of the higher education watchdog that uh, hopefully will make some um, changes for future generations. Um, and so, yeah, so that would be my final remarks. Where can uh, where can everybody keep up with you at besides the American Enterprise Institute? You know, I try to write every day, not every day, but on a regular basis, I write on the Carpe Diem blog. So um, people could just do a search for Carpe Diem blog or Carpe Diem Mark Perry or Carpe Diem American Enterprise Institute. And they could find my blog. I use a lot of graphs and charts and figures and tables and animated charts and maps. And so I try to make it really visually interesting and appealing and write about economics and finance and a lot of other topics uh, kind of for a general audience and then people can subscribe to get a uh, daily or an email when there's new content posted they can get an email to make it even more convenient than going and searching for the website so yeah so people could follow me on the carpe diem blog that i started in 2006 so it's been going now for what, 15 years or something like that so Got a lot of history there and a lot of followers and be happy to have people um, log on and follow me by uh, getting the subscribing to the to the emails well awesome thank you so much for joining us today we were uh, very excited to have you on and great interview yeah thank you yeah, thank